1: Hello, I'm JT Crowley and I'm happy to be talking to Ralph E. Saucer about his wonderful book, The History of the Progressive Movement in the United States and how liberalism has created a mediocre society. Ralph originated from the small town Fort Fairfield in Arstock County, eastern Maine in the United States, where he lived with his parents and six other siblings. Coming from a large family growing up in the 50s and the 60s in post-World War II America, Ralph learnt the art of adapting and coexisting with others. Those qualities he required back then still resonate with his community views today. A speech impediment resulting in a stammer meant life for Ralph in his childhood took on a different perspective. He struggled at school as a, the consequences of his stammering And at times he felt isolated within himself due to his poor communication skills and those around him very often saw him as a bit of a loner. The stammer faded over the years and with his newfound confidence through college and numerous career opportunities, as well as public speaking, Ralph became a successful business operator. Having chatted to Ralph, I've gleaned that to compensate for his speech defect, Ralph turned to writing and reading. He confesses to being a voracious reader, something he's had to do when researching for the relevant facts about this book. Another passion of his is politics. Like his parents, in his younger days, he was a staunch advocate of the Democrat society, the Democratic Party. But over the years, his philosophical affiliations have moved sharply to the Republican camp. Why? Let's just say, life changed his views. But all these three passions of his, reading, writing and politics, are at the heart of what This book is all about everybody. He presently lives in Burford, Georgia, with his wife, Gloria. So without further to do, let's invite him to come on to the show and reveal the inner essence of this phenomenal book. Ralph, come and join me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, oh, you're very welcome. It's it's a phenomenal book, everybody. It's 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 really interesting, and that the history over the last 120 years is absolutely of the progressive movement and the presidents who he sees has influenced this. It's been absolutely mind blowing for me, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Ralph, in essence, your book is how America society has progressed, albeit to you mediocre, over the last hundred and odd years towards liberalism and how certain US presidents have influenced, directed those changes through their political agendas. And we're talking presidents on both sides of the divide here, everybody. Have I got the flavour, the gist of your book right here by saying what I've just said?
0: Yes, yes you have, John.
1: Yes. So why did you choose both sides of the divide? You know, some presidents from the, the Democrats and some from the Republicans.
0: Well, basically, John, the progressive movement, you know, many people like contributed to a particular party, but that's not so. Uh, we've had many presidents in the past on both sides of the aisle who kind of misinterpret and, and the public misinterpret the word progressiveness progressiveness is to help people, but it's, it is not to drain people of their funds. And we do, you know, it, it, in the progressive movement, it is believed that, you know, in certain, certain areas you have to help people. But then you can go to the extreme. And what the book tried to bring out, some of these extreme you know, movements, in you know, with the presidents. And that was my main zest of the book, is to show, you know, show the public that, you know, find out what really progressiveness is, and this is why I did a lot of research on a lot of different presidents, and uh, I I kind of brought it back to the turn of the century when I feel progressiveness in, in, in my reading, in my studies, it really started and where it came to today.
1: Ralph, when I go on to the U.S. Department of State's archives to get an understanding of what lies at the heart of the progressive movement in the U.S. history, I get the impression it was a political movement that started with President Theodore Roosevelt, um, Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson, and, and they just started at the turn of the 20th century to bring about further social and political reform by curbing political corruption caused by political machines and limiting the political influence of large corporations. These, um, so thus empowering the man on the street with greater liberalisation. Am I right? And do you yes. think your book paints a fair picture here?
0: Yes, especially when, when you go back to the turn of the century, the, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was the first one that took advantage of, you might say, you know, starting government programs. Before you know, Theodore Roosevelt, there really wasn't a lot of government programs that existed. And he started the park department, et cetera. But then when you got into, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson, you know, he decided that the terror the money coming from the United States, the tariff, you know, was not enough to supply and do the programs he wanted. And in uh, 1916, he, you know, he created, no, I'm sorry, 1913, he created the 16th Amendment but, you know, with the income tax. And from there, as as my book indicates, he, he, you know, he created program after program.
1: You see... In your book, there are 13 chapters, and most or all, nearly all are identifying uh, with a particular president and the role they played in driving the progressive movement to bring about greater liberalism to the American people. You start with chapters one and two, Theodore Roosevelt, the new nationalism, and Woodrow Wilson, godfather of liberalism how significant were these two presidents what you could be possibly construed as the Kickstarters to this political movement? You've already touched upon it, so you you, you dumped my next question here.
0: <laughs> well, I emphasize those two in particular because I think I got to realize, or I got to either presidents to realize that they could have programs that you know, could offer people more And, and through the years from the initial start of, of the century, it kind of created programs that I hate, you know, I'm not sure how to put it, but it would, it would take the liberty away from people. We were at one time a country. If if you go way back before the turn of the century that, you know, we were a country basically that, that would, uh, uh, people had, uh, you know, an awful lot of freedom. And as as the century progressed, the presidents progressed. You know, different programs. You know, just kind of took some of that away. I think back when I was a kid in the fifties and sixties, and what the country is today is really not the same country. Ralph, you view chapter four in
1: your book, and this is chapter four is. um Really, talking about the President Woodrow Wilson, and it's about new freedom. I think you think this is a significant chapter based on the idea that President Woodrow Wilson was considered by many as to be the father of progressiveness. Am I right in saying that this chapter four is so important to you?
0: Yes, yes, it is. It's, it's, it's the whole, you know. Before you know, Wilson, there really, like I said, there wasn't income tax, and it started to realize you could tax the people, and it continued through the years to get worse and worse. But Wilson, you know, Woodrow Wilson, with all his programs, and, and there are numerous, numerous programs if you go through the book in, on, on Chapter Four, that he brought in as many programs as he could. But what he found out at the end of his presidency is that. He only needed money to, to to sponsor these programs because the tariff was you know was forty percent at the time, and he dropped it to twenty five percent. But he needed to make up that you know that that dollar, so he created the income tax, and that income tax, of course, paid for the programs, so, and that's why they called him the father of progressiveness.
1: I've always wondered, actually, why. Um, so, you, well, you've just. Um, Broaden my mind there. Um, I'm sure you can appreciate that if we went through, Ralph, every chapter in your books, yes, there are 13 chapters, and each president that's linked to those chapters, we'll be here forever and a day, everybody. And the idea of the podcast, as I say to every other author I interview or when we do the podcast, the idea is giving listeners, viewers, a flavor of what. The author is writing, not to get into the great details of it, because if you want to do that, go and buy the book. The idea is to give you an insight, a flavor, and that's what we do. So I skip chapters so that you're going to get a broad view of the book. Um, So I would like to come to, if you don't mind, to Chapter 5, Franklin D. Roosevelt. New Deal, which I understand included new constraints and safeguards on the banking industry and efforts to reinflate the US economy, reform of Wall Street, relief for farmers and unemployed, social security matters. Why do you dedicate this chapter to him? Do you honestly think he plays such a significant part in liberalising America in the nineteen thirties, from the great Depression,
0: well yeah well, you know we kind of went into the great Great Depression for many reasons and and he you know he's credited for getting us out of it, but theoretically, World War two got us out of the depression you know it's uh, you know he had many programs. And he tried to, you know, the TVA is one that, that he, you know, initiated. And, and that had a lot of, you know, benefits to it. It, 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 especially, you know, in Tennessee, where they, you know, created the dams and everything else. But the fact of the matter is Roosevelt, if you go through that chapter, his program after program, which we still live with today, you know, once the government creates a program, it doesn't go away. We like to think, well, maybe it's going to go away, but it doesn't. And Roosevelt created many programs in that time period in the 30s and and, and after the 30s he did not create any more programs because we had the war to contend with. Okay, but I I I really credit him in many ways of, of creating programs, raising the income tax, and putting us in a situation in this country where the average person, I you know, I believe at that time was was kind of depending on the government to, you know, to do what he did. And he did what he did, and we turned around, never lost those programs, and just continued paying for them through the years, creating a lot more progressiveness. Ah, hmm. That's food
1: for thought, particularly for me. I don't know about uh, you viewers, but I thought that was quite an interesting uh, response to my question there. Um, I want to come forward Now, you know, let's, you know, with regards to the presidents, to the presidents who are a little, you know, some of them are still alive, um, to near our time at the moment. And I want to come to Bill Clinton, if you don't mind. Because that chapter, President Bill Clinton's silent liberalism, some people say he saved liberalism with his fresh political synthesis of liberal themes backing up the civil rights movement, feminist victories gained in the 1970s, and highlighting the Republicans' uh, views on race inequalities. You, know, you have some interesting viewpoints here. Do you want to embellish? Tell us more. Why did you put him here?
0: Well, Bill Clinton was a politician of all politicians. He knew how to work both parties. And you know he had Newt, Newt Gingrich on the Republican as as the House uh, chairperson, and you know he was good. He put a lot of programs through with the Republican Party and and the Democrats, and he did it very silently. It wasn't broadcast, and he put many many programs through. He was you know he was a great politician, you know you know probably one of the best you know political presidents we ever had. But he was able to put programs through. And they say that, well, you know, he balanced the budget. Yeah, he balanced the budget. He balanced the budget by taking a lot away. So, you know, he was just a great, silent president. You know, he did a lot. He did a lot, but he did it silently.
1: Do you think that behind every great president, there is a phenomenal person behind them? the First Lady, and in this case,
0: Hillary Clinton. In this case, Hillary, from the day that, that Clinton was governor of Arkansas, she was behind him. Uh, that's why he put her in charge of, of trying to get a national health program. He thought she could get it through because she is a person, very, very convincing, as, as we saw when she ran you know, for president. She's extremely convincing person. She, you know, she has a, a background that is probably not, you com- know, what the first lady could ever compare to. Okay. But she, yes, I, you know, I believe that she was behind him in a lot of ways and a lot of ways she probably helped to run the white house. <laughs> so, so, but she very, 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 very convincing lady. Yes, yeah, she, she wasn't
1: uh, a first lady who's there to paint the walls or pick the curtains or the furniture for the White House. She had her own
0: political agenda, didn't she? I don't, think she, I don't think she was concerned what, what colour the curtains were. She wasn't bothered. No.
1: No. Can we, um, Ralph, go to Chapter 10? Another Democrat here. Barack Obama and social entitlement. That's the title you've given this chapter. Now, Barack Obama began his second term in office with an inaugural address calling on Americans to work together to preserve entitlements, address climate change and to extend civil rights. He said, quote, together, we resolved that a great nation must care for the vulnerable and protect its people from life's worst hazards and misfortune. Was his presidency significant enough in your eyes, Ralph, towards the progressive movement that you allocated chapter ten to him?
0: What did well, he do? I kind of look at Barack Obama as as a president who was more more concerned with with doing things for his party and, and his own well being during his presidency. And they thought he would do a lot, for example, the black people. He did not. Okay. You know, unemployment went up, you know, wages went down and, and, uh you know, taxes went up. So he really didn't do a lot to, to help the American people. He created a lot of programs, you know, his national health insurance, um, he said would, would save a lot, but it costs people 2500 to $7,000 or more for insurance. There are approximately seven thousand people that lost their insurance because of the national health care. So, you know, you know, he thought he was doing things that would help the majority of people, but he did not. So that's why I put him in there as, as extreme progressive, because the national health insurance, the affordable health care they called it, actually costs people a lot of money. And we're it, talking it,
1: about Obamacare here.
0: No Obamacare, yes. yes. Yeah yeah they theoretical they call it now the affordable health care, and of course, as you know, later in the years, you know a lot of that was taken away you know, for example, uh he had a penalty of twenty five hundred dollars for anybody who didn't sign up for it, and uh people found out many people found out that it was cheaper or less expensive, i should say not to sign up for it and pay and pay the extra tax. And that's exactly what happened. That's why a lot of it failed.
1: Do you see him as, uh, I mean, the world
0: perhaps sees him as a great orator? Uh, oh, he was. He was. He could talk. Oh, yeah, he was a great orator. I, I, I don't deny that. He, he was able to get up and, and really convince people. I mean, you know, he was a great speaker.
1: I I, I agree with you, because I think he's a great speaker, a bit like Martin Luther King Jr., great speaker. And for us over here, Winston Churchill. They could all deliver a speech. Because you can say a speech, but then there is saying a speech. I'm right, aren't I?
0: Yes. Yeah, I he, he he great you know he gave a great speech and and uh, you know, he was great at talking, but if you look back at his background and things that happened and developed during during his presidency, what he said would happen never happened, and my book brings brings quite a few of these things out you know so that's why you've put him in the book:
1: That's correct Well, there you go, everybody. The, the plot thickens, as they say. <laughs> now, without a doubt, Ralph, whether you did this consciously or unconsciously, you devote Chapter 11 in your book to Donald Trump, the outsider president. You head this up. Yes. To many around the world, the Trump presidency was seen as chaotic dysfunctional, divisive, yet you devote almost 60 pages to this chapter extolling the virtues of his term in office and to what he did for Americans. So my question to you is why do you feel it was so necessary to apportion a fair chunk of your book to the Trump presidency?
0: Well, in number one, Donald Trump did approximately 140 different things that helped the American people. You know, you know, salaries went up, taxes went down. He had a great tax program that took tax away from the middle class, and 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 unemployment went up, and with the black people, Hispanic, Latins, you know, everybody. The problem with Donald Trump and his presidency is that. He did not know how to deliver it. He had good programs and, and, and he did it, at, you know, at the White House. But he had a situation where he spoke, where he antagonized. He, I mean, he was an antagonizer, and, you know, let's be honest oh, yeah. about it. And, uh, you, you, you're saying that many people abroad, uh, kind of look at him being a disruptive type of president, but it wasn't in this country. A, a lot of people didn't. He's, he got 30, 40, 50,000 people at rallies. I've never seen that in my life. Now, you know, the thing is, I feel that foreign countries had, to me, had more of a fear of Donald Trump than thinking he was disrupted because, you know, he got the NATO people or the NATO countries to pay up, you know. And and he was great at getting our hostages out of different countries, um, you know, so and he had a great secretary of state at the end not at the first but at the end but Don, Donald Trump basically um I feel foreign countries had kind of a fear of him because I do not believe that Russia would invade Ukraine if he was president and he had the tariff against in China and the imports from China he had that you know starting starting to get that under control so I you know I think Donald Trump did a lot of things but he just wasn't a politician. That's that, uh, that was the main problem with Donald Trump.
1: But do you think, you know, because you give the, your book a fair chunk to um, the presidency of Donald Trump, that he was significant in the progressive movement?
0: Well, that's a good question, because what Donald Trump did do increased our deficit. And so, you know, there was progressiveness in in, in his programs and what he did, he did contribute a bit to the progressive movement, absolutely, because if you check his history, you'll find that Donald Trump was a Democrat most of his life, so the, I know, it, yeah, <laughs> it kind of reflected into him being a Republican you know as a president he you know he was out to help people the The cost of unemployment going down in various segments of the population was not cheap mm. it did cost money so so the deficit did go up i mean i mean you know we had a problem with with wars and then i think he did a good job in afghanistan trying trying to get the killing down i mean our loss of lives in afghanistan dropped dropped tremendously you know he at at the end of his presidency but yes i yeah i i think that was a good question john (laughs) you know his programs did did cost and Yes, it, it, he was definitely helping in the progressive woman in this country.
1: I was just interested in your viewpoint there, so that's why I thought I'm going to slip that question in. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go to Chapter 12 here. And this is the Biden presidency, the present president. And you are saying, where are we going? Why do you say that?
0: Well, you know, you take a man that's been in Washington for 40, 50 years like him. He's got a lot of experience and you think he would know basically, you know, which direction to put this country in for it to be, you know, benefiting everybody. But he's not since, you know, he, he, you know, he cut the keystone line, uh, you know, pipe uh, oil line down. And I mean, he stopped the fracking. He stopped. You know, drilling in many areas of the country. And when Donald Trump left office, we were, you know, exporting more oil than we were importing. Now, you know, Biden got in and, and he did all these things with the economy. Now he's asking, you know, um, you know, the Arabs to import more oil to us. He, you know, he's even going to Venezuela, which we consider you know, enemies, you know, basically to, you know, to get gas. So, so the fact is, you know, the gas has gone up, you know, it, you know, prices and everything gone up. I give you an example, I, I go shopping for my wife and I, and, and uh, I buy, you know, the three dozen egg package, and it used to be $2.60. I paid $4.62 for it. So, you, you know, you, you know, there's nothing that, 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 that Biden has done at the present time to help the country, in my opinion, And I believe he's increased, you know, the progressiveness and he's, and he's trying to push people towards, you know, buying, you know, buying electric cars. That's fine. I have nothing against electric cars. I don't want one. But the fact is, is that, uh, you know, he's doing it at, at, at any price or cost. So I, I don't believe he's doing what's best for the country. And I asked where, you know, where are we going? I, you know, I think if it continues at this point, you know, we're at the end of a couple of years, the country is going more and more towards socialism. And I think somewhere it's along a line that people in the United States are going to say enough is enough because we love our freedom. You know, the American, you know, the American people are just, you know, we love our freedom and, and it, it, there's a certain point where it's, it's going to have to stop. So that's why I say that, you know, where's this country going?
1: Cause it's quite a short chapter, and I suppose it's short because he's still, you know, he's the sitting president and he's only been there for about, what, coming up to two years? Whereas the others, some did four years and some did eight years. So yeah. they've had a bit more history to them, haven't they?
0: Well, we're hoping that the four years is it. <laughs> now, now. That's what we're hoping. <laughs> a lot of us are. Um, I'm curious here.
1: Um, once people have read your book, Ralph, What are the key messages you want them to take away and think about?
0: That's a good question. Um, You know, I'm going to put my glass on to read this because it's something that I, I, you know, many Americans don't realize was the progressive is. Progressives have to be paid by people. People have to realize that the more, you know, the more programs that government give out, the more it's going to cost you. You know, it's like, you know, it's like my father taught me, you know, he may have been a strong advocate Democrat. One day I made a mistake of saying something about Franklin Roosevelt and I thought he was going to throw me out of the house. (laughs) (laughs) But, But the fact of the matter is, you know, I was raised in a sense that if you want something and you're going to work for it and you're going to get paid for it, if you don't work for it, you're just not going to get it. Okay. And it seems like, you know, the majority of people in this country do not realize, especially, you know, the younger people that are, you know, they're in college, they don't realize the progressives is going to take things away from them. And this is what I try, I try to bring out that the more programs we have from the government, the more it's going to cost you, the more, you know, the less freedom you're going to have. That's really the message I was trying to get across.
1: Who do you, um And visualize reading your book, but more importantly, who would you
0: want to read your book who would i want i I really would love to see the younger generation read my book because many of people my age we know just what direction they are, but i you know I like to see people from eighteen to forty five in that area you know read the book. You know the younger people who who don't who haven't lived through the fifties and sixties. You know, I I mean the fifties and sixties to me were just. You know, I I look at the movie American Graffiti and and that was my teenage years. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, you know just before the Vietnam War. You know, and then Vietnam War came and you now I volunteered. You know, I went in for six years. Along, along with many friends. Mine was the 80s. All right, 80s. <laughs> no, no, the 80s. I was raising two kids, and I was going in business, and I was, so I had- What do you a, call your kids? Pardon, sir? What do you call your kids? My kids are both diehard Republicans. They, they, you know, they had no choice. <laughs> no, <but> what do <laughs> you call them? <clears throat> My son is Ralph, Ralph Junior. Excuse me, and my daughter, you know, is Sherry Lynn. Are they proud of you when you write your books? Um, I would say my son is, and my daughter read it, and she she actually loved it. Uh, she she was definitely into it. I'm trying to get my grandchildren to to read it. That one is married and and uh, expecting a you know baby. That would be my first great grandchild. And then, uh, he, my other granddaughter is getting ready to go to college. And then I, my grandson is only 16 years old, but, uh, they have, well, the mother got a copy, but, you know, she bought, but, uh, the kids don't, they don't yet. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I, but, you know, I would like to see, uh, like, like college kids. Uh, I, I think it would be a great book for, for the younger generation to read and understand just where this country came from, where it's gone, and what has happened to this country in the past 100 years. So would you like to see your book in the libraries at the universities? I would very much. My, my first book wound up at the library in, at Oxford University, actually. Wow.
1: Ralph, where can
0: people get a copy of your book from? Well, I have a website, s a u c i e r h o m e S-A-U-C-I-E-R-H-O-M-E.com. You can get it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble website, um, Books A Million, and uh, um, I, any other uh, you know, international book uh, you know, website, it's, it's on. I, I have cut the marking out to all of these. But, Your publishes
1: iUniverse? You know, Pardon, sir? Your publishers, I
0: Universe. Sorry, yes, iUniverse, I but I don't believe you can buy directly from them. You would have to buy from me to go through I Universe, because, of course, if you buy from me, I go to iUniverse. But most of the people that, I've, that I have sold so far is Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Yeah.
1: Just on a personal note, Ralph, people with a speech impediments, what do you
0: say to them to achieve their own goals in life? You know, I I was so bad I couldn't talk to my mother, you know, and uh, it's really it's really force not really forcing but take you know I took public speaking courses, and and I you know and it helped me a lot, but one of one of the biggest things I I believe that's helped me is starting to have a lot of faith in yourself. I think people with speech impediments kind of lose the aspect that they're as good as the next person and not not get tied up at what you're trying to say but feel and talk from the heart do you know somebody
1: a famous person who had a speech impediment
0: you know that's interesting british pardon he was british Yes, um, that was King George. Indeed, yeah, King George the sixth had a very bad impediment. Yes, yeah, the Queen's I father, I understand Abraham Lincoln did too, and, and, yeah. and he overcame it. You know, so yeah, King George. I saw I saw the movie, and and, and the instructor he had to try and get him over it, and everything else. It was a great, you know, it was a great movie. It was an American who. Got him over it. An American. He
1: was American, yes. Who they went to to uh, overcome his stammer. Mm. uh, Anyway, Ralph, I have to say I've thoroughly enjoyed your book. Uh, It's been eye-opening for me. It's been inspiring for me. And I'm sure um, all the viewers and listeners who are going to be looking at the podcast, reading the introduction, are going to find it exactly the same. So I simply say, Ralph E. Saucier, thank you for coming on my show. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Well, thank you. I was very honored to do this with you. I mean, I I wish I would have had you for my first book. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that one later. <laughs> you we'll know, talk about that later. Well, thank you very much, John, and God bless you. So, everybody, as I
1: end the podcast every time. I'm J.D. Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe.